Hello and welcome to the STC Fit Learning Podcast. I'll be your host today. My name's Ben Scott. I'll be joined by Jason Galea. Thanks for joining us on our way to create 1 million positive outcomes for personal training clients by 2030. The podcast is brought to you by at STC Fit Learning, a page created to upskill and educate PTs and gym nerds. Also brought to you by at STC Fit, and that's a place for all your online and in-person personal training needs. If you enjoyed today's episodes, please give us a share and tag on the Instawebs. You can tag at STC Fit, at STC Fit Learning, at Ben Scott SC, and at Jason Galea PC. Hope you enjoy the show. Tell us about the move, bro. Well, that is, uh, I appreciate that question, how it was framed, saying how's the move, because everyone keeps saying to me, oh, I'll leave you alone, you're on holidays. I'm like, mate, this isn't a holiday. We've invented <laughs> the country, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, nice for me, because I could pay it off, play it off and be like, ah, don't worry about it. Like, I'm on holidays. Give me a breath. Leave but, me alone. Yeah, man. It's, it's, um, <laughs> London was awesome. Uh, the, pl- the location was really good. The place we were in was real small, but it was cute and cool, like we expected it to be. The place we just moved into here in Liverpool is honestly... I want to say four times bigger for the oh, same price. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually a th- it's actually a three bed and it's a full kitchen and a full fridge. You know, like I'm I'm on contest prep for people that aren't aware, but um, it was kind of beneficial in that we only had a bar fridge, yeah. so I was forced to buy like a day's worth of meat, days worth of food, yeah. walk to the shops every day. So like I had a lot of incidental output going on, which was nice. Whereas here, um, the shops a little bit further away. We have a full fridge. I might have to get out and do some formal steps now, but yeah. we'll yeah. see what yeah. happens. But yeah. The cold has been a blessing um, for fatigue management. I've um, I've really enjoyed it, man. It's been pretty good. Yeah, cool. Yeah, awesome. Do you, you don't miss home at all? Not yet. No, I think <laughs> um, like home for me is routine in doing things that I like and yeah, having yeah. like good experience. Yeah. So, like, I miss the freedom of not being in a contest, bro. That's what I probably miss the most. Not actually home. Yeah. Um, of which, though, like, because Liz and I are foodies and we had some real good favourite restaurants on the Gold Coast that were exceptionally well-priced compared to London, I miss that. Yeah. But I couldn't have it now anyway, so it's kind of probably, you know, a nice, in six a nice way to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, like, my life is the same here, eh? Like yeah. A, yeah. Actually, the, the difference is I do split shifts for work pretty much as opposed to a full day. I'll do an yeah. afternoon and a morning, you know? Yeah. But it's actually better. I actually like it. Yeah, it's cool. I'm going to do, we're in Europe for four weeks for my honeymoon. I'm going to do two weeks out of office, two weeks in the office. So I think mm. it's going to be like a couple of real early starts for our workshops while we're here and then sort of yep. like 5 a.m. work till halfway through the day and then we're doing that while we're in resorts though and then we'll, the time off will be in the city so we've got more time to explore. But yeah, but interesting. Yeah. I, we've worked away a bit. Um, I did a month on the Gold Coast and it was like mm. same kind of deal. It's like once you get, that routine back. It's like, yeah, I'm okay. Mm. Main thing is, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Have you noticed Where any, in Europe and what time? Um, middle of April, we're going to do, where are we going? Uh, Swiss Alps, French Riviera, down to south of Spain, back to Germany, and then to Austria, Poland, home. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Should be good. Drive, drive Austria if you can. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. like the whole place looks like the sound of music, man. It's fucking beautiful. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, well, we've been like obviously watching all the YouTube, like explore the city stuff on YouTube. Like, man, 
Mm. Looks crazy. It's just another world compared to Australia. Australia's so young. It's just green and barnyards, man. You're like, you know, like big barnyard homes. It's like crazy. But yeah, we drove from um, from Budapest through Austria to Munich mm. and then from Munich down to Slovenia and into Croatia. Yeah. And um, I would highly recommend doing that. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. Plus, you can go on the autobahn, mate. And that Ooh. just means go as fast as the other cars because you can't read the signs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, um, um, we're going to Stuttgart, so I'm pretty hopeful, depending on what the regulations are at the time, to get behind something pretty impressive over there. So they got the Porsche, <laughs> Porsche factory there and the Merck factory there and the museums and stuff. So apparently you can just like, I want to drive that today. I'm like, sure. Yeah, man. If you have the money, you can do that. <laughs> You'll be married by then, so you may as well kill yourself in a car crash. Why not? (laughs) Boxes are ticked. We're all done. I'm out. (laughs) All right, so we better jump into the actual topic. Um, So Dean is another presenter in our 1% coach program. Um, So we're super excited to have him on board. And I I made a post on Instagram the other day. It's really cool that like we're announcing the course at the moment and tagging Dean and stuff. And it's like your cheekbones are all like your cheeks are sunken in and you're posting shredded glutes and shit. It's like, this is the guy that we're getting to talk about comp prep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, was, I was laughing with a, with a colleague the other day saying, I'm in the process of finalizing some of my video content that goes alongside the written part for the one percenter. And here I am with this face and I'm just like, I might just in every video just go, if you don't look like this, you're not ready. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Some great examples. Yeah. Um, so my first question was when we came to you with the idea of like personal trainers who have some experience training who want to move into comp prep, where did your mind go? What was the first thing you were like, okay, this is what everyone fucks up and this is really what they need to know? Yeah, I think the problem with comp prep is that people don't take the time to think how big picture it is. Because, yeah. you know, like we, we, we work in an industry, at least, you know, yourselves, ourselves at Flex and the people that we associate in a manner in which we're trying to, you know, do no harm, minimize as much harm as possible, discuss sustainable approaches, all of these things that are essentially anti-contest prep. Because contest prep is both extreme in nature and also pretty extreme in length in regards to the dieting strategies, the training strategies, you know, the lifestyle impacts, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I think like a lot, a lot of people think it's just another thing. Mm. And what they don't realize is they're actually asking somebody to give up a lot, a lot of time, a lot of energy, you know, a lot of, like I said, social food, you name it. And not only are they asking them to give it up a lot, but they're asking them to do it for an extended period of time or they're not recognizing the actual amount of time you should be spending setting someone up for a contest prep yeah, um, to try and mitigate all of those negatives that we'll probably talk about throughout today. So like, I think people don't think big picture when it comes to bodybuilding in general, they don't think periodization, they're not a performance orientated mindset, you know, yeah. they're just thinking I need to get shredded. How do I do that? I pull all these calories, I do all this output and I just hope for the best. Whereas for me, it's like, no, 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 no. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. And then there's checkpoints and there's periods of stopping and starting and, there's ways to go about this, ways to periodize it. So that was that was me in a nutshell. I was like, oh, all right, cool. What I can do here is we can frame this up in a almost a philosophical manner and be like, all right, what does it mean to do a contest prep? What does that look like big picture? Where do we even start? And then once we do start, how do we then manage all of these variables that potentially are concerning to the individual over what elongated period of time to ensure the most successful result 
on stage, but also to prevent the most, uh, to prevent the, the negatives that typically happen off stage. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and somehow you asked me to do this in, in four hours of content. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Roundaboutish. Roundaboutish. <laughs> Dean's four, module might go long, guys. Four, eight, whatever. <laughs> 20. You can do as much as you like. Yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone will complain with more. Yeah, I'm anyway. not going to be saying that. I'll be like, yeah. Looks great, mate. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, like, I know. Years ago, we did like a, a podcast on comp prep and we like talked about this checklist that we had. Like if our client was to come to us and be like, we're going to compete and we had it's maybe like 10 things mm-hmm. of like, you need to tick all these boxes for us to even accept you. Mm-hmm. You're in a position where, uh, from what I understand, you pretty much do solely competitors these days. Yep, does, that, does that criteria still apply for yourself, like, do you still, if you're going to consult with someone, or like, how do you say you're good to go or you're not good to go? Yeah, I, I'm. I've actually said this to a couple of people too. I'm in a fortunate and unfortunate situation now, whereby my client base is so self-serving and so biased towards how I coach and who I represent as as a coach in regards to the athletes that I have. That um. It's, it's great because I get people that are essentially ready to go, that are ready to do the work, have likely done the work prior and are really coming to me for the refinement phase in that they're like, oh, I've done this before and I think I can do it better and I think he might be the right person for it, yeah. you know, uh, as opposed to the beginner who's like, can I just give this a go? And then I have to do the whole like, do you really think you should, you know? Yeah. Um, so it kind of depends on who they, who they are. Uh, but yeah, typically in an onboarding fashion, there's a conversation around whether they've done it before, what some of their diet philosophies are, like mentality around training. Do they have the appropriate social setup? Like, do they have a partner that understands? All those sorts of things are just mm-hmm. general conversations and I get a general feel uh, for it and that still exists for sure. Yeah. Do you still have that kind of criteria as well with your guys, Jay? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, um, even ask Dean, like, what the bare minimum is before you do the contest prep. Like, you know, ideally, they would, we would like them to have dieted before. We would like them to get to, like, they don't have to get to, like, contest, uh, it's like stage lean, but somewhere like, you know, where we're kind of pushing it so they get to feel mm. what it's like, you know, and it has some of those implications that Dean was talking about, like, you know, socially and um, I guess like energetic wise and whatnot. Cause then it's like, we are probably going to be magnifying this um, and drawing it out for a longer period of time. And that's in a nutshell what you're going to experience. And if you don't like getting to this percent body fat for argument's sake, yeah, maybe this isn't really going to work. Yeah. And I think for, mm. for a PT who's looking to learn how to structure a comp prep, maybe you've done some, maybe you haven't yet and you're thinking about getting into it. More often than not, you're probably going to be working with people who are like, I'd like to. Like they're already clients and now they're like, now I would like to do this. Or you're thinking about this person has a pretty impressive physique and maybe that's a, a pursuit that I want to go down as a, as a coach so I can talk to this uh, client to, to go down that road. So I think it's, the, like you said, Dean, look, looking at it through that global lens because I get it all the time in powerlifting. It's like, oh yeah, I'll just do a meet. It's like, no, no, no. Going to the gym and being strong and doing a powerlifting competition are not the same thing. The commitment level mm-hmm. is very different. Mm. What you're going to go through is very different. And it's, in my opinion, doesn't touch what you've got to go through to be impressive mm-hmm. on stage. Like Maybe not to get to stage, but actually be impressive It's on stage. Because they just think like, oh, I just died a little bit harder and train a little bit more. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's the thing too, right? I have, a, I have a standard that I have to uphold now as a coach. Otherwise, in regards to how lean my athletes get, otherwise I'm, I'm judged for it. And that could be mm. could be my fault. It could be their fault. It could be a combination. But there is a standard there now. Uh, but I think those conversations are really dependent on the person. So, like, if if it's a new competitor, I actually don't mind if someone's not, not dieted before. I'm more interested in their behaviors and their language around food and, like, how they tolerate the opportunity or how they manage the opportunity to even have, like, an off-plan free meal that isn't attracted for or accounted for or what does their week look like if they don't track at all or can they not track, you know, or, mm-hmm. uh, or are they, like, really, really, really neurotic trackers? Like, all of those sort of behavior things are probably more concerning to me than anything. Uh, because those are the things that will dial up typically under a stressful situation. Mm. Whereas, because I've had individuals before that have never dieted before who have dieted exceptionally well, but like all of the behavior in the conversation was fantastic. Like I have a client, um, Cam George, who came top top two, top three at the Nationals in his first ever season. Uh, and he's a freak man, but he'd never done yeah. it before. But yeah. he got peeled inside out, like probably one of the leanest guys on stage. But it was because he was a very process orientated, tick the boxes kind of guy, you know, non-emotional. Yeah. At the time he was single, didn't have to worry about partners. Like, he, his life was set up to do it very well, you know. Mm. Um, <laughs> he actually asked another client of mine, I found out in that prep and said, hey, um, Alex, like, I was going to ask Dean, but I don't want to be near, but am I supposed to feel this bad? You know, like, <laughs> like, and Alex was like, yeah, yeah, bro. You do, don't worry about He's like, okay, like, I'll just keep doing it then. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. So it depends. Whereas, whereas if it's um, someone who's competed before, then really it's, yeah, me trying to figure out like what went wrong last time or, you know, what I can fix or what I can dial up or dial down. Or it's more about me discussing the process than it is necessarily the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned in the in that kind of first part of like people, the first thought is where do I start? There's all these variables that I know I need to control and think about. And let's say that they are, this person now is like, okay, this is much bigger than just dieting. Where do we actually start mm. when it comes to a comprehend? You need to, it's more difficult if you've never competed before. It's less difficult if you have and don't use drugs. Uh, because you essentially should have a rough estimation as to what your weight would be at the end of it based on previous history. But really what you're looking at is like, what is my current situation in regards to body fat? What is my expected amount of body fat and or body weight to lose? And then in what given time frame is an acceptable time to do that? You know, then planning that out, determining like what is it, the, you know, an effective versus a pushing rate of loss to get each week, make sure that aligns. And then allowing for certain error margins, which is sort of how I've set this contest prep part up. It's like, you know, we start at X weight, we expect to finish at X weight. Do we have events we need to worry about? Do we have error margin? Do we need to worry about? Do we want to try and mitigate fatigue by potentially not dieting for periods that we need to, to allow for? Yes. Let all of these things then start to get tipped into the box. And and what, what people will realize when they start to go through the program is that what may be an initial thought process of 16 weeks of dieting could end up somewhere in the vicinity of 20 to 30, mm. really depending on the individual. And then, yeah, uh, then you're really having the discussion with the client, like, is this what you want to do? Because yeah. now we're yeah. talking, not talking about a four month commitment. We're talking about a six month commitment, you know? Um, so yeah, where to start is first you're going to figure out where you need to end. And then you need to figure out what you need to achieve in between those two points to determine the length you require. Yeah, where you need um, to start. And then, 
Like that's that's awesome where you need to start first, figure out where you need to end. That's dope. Yeah. And then there's a two part to that too, and that a lot of people that come to you, and this is where coaches need to learn to buck up and say no, is you have two primary focuses that you can have an individual go through to, to get from the beginning to the end. You can have a goal orientated focus whereby you're saying the goal is to be X by X weight by X date, sorry. And the time is now determining the rate of loss that you have to achieve to get there. Yeah. It's also determining the process you take, which may or may not be the best process. It's just saying I have this amount of time. I need this amount to come off. Therefore I have to do the following strategies to get there. Yeah. yeah. And then there's another one, which is the process, which is, hey, what process do I want to take? What's the optimal approach, you know? And then how do I dial this up and down? And then how long will that take? And then looking at the two differences between them and saying, shit, do I really want to do this? Because what my experience in the past has been is that most people come to you and say, hey, man, I'm 16 weeks out. I want to die. And I'm like, that's cool. You're 24 weeks out. So, no, I'm not willing to do that, you know? doesn't mean that you can't. It just means that I'm personally not willing to deviate from my process too far knowing what the potential consequences are with that, you know? And this is one of the things that you kind of learn through experience, but also I've got some, um, some like red flag moments within the, the program too, to sort of talk about like how much energy can we actually take away from a person calorically speaking and not put them at a greater risk for something like, you know, uh, relative energy uh, def- uh, deficit, you know, like reds, like, mm there's there's certain things that we need to assess here to make sure that this isn't a problem you know yeah yeah with those um i guess endpoints and knowing how much to lose and stuff do you have you formulated those based off like your own experience like do you know like this person needs to get to this percent body fat and it's and this person needs to get to this um and is that based off like you know what you've got uh what you've kind of gathered in your own experiences coaching people is it like if you do this division, you need to be this, you know, and you use that as a framework and it's like a roundaboutish. you know that like everyone's going to kind of look a little bit different at those end, those hypothetical endpoints. Yeah. There's always a level of obviously guesstimation, right? And what I, I think is probably most advantageous for people that are starting out versus someone in, in, in my position that now has been doing it for years is as you start out, the more objective you can be, it will help you sort of set that framework up a little bit better with some more clarity. So we want, we might want to take some objective measures like, you know, if you're a male bodybuilder getting on stage, we know that you need to be as close as proximity as possible to, um, you know, physiologically necessary body fat, you know, the vital amount, which is like, you know, 3%, you know, to pick an arbitrary number. So you could say, you know, if you want to be 3%, how do we determine like how much fat mass? Okay. Let's go get a DEXA or a pinch test or something. Give us something that's somewhat objective. Mm. And we can say, all right, well, you've got, 15 kilos of fat mass on a DEXA and you're a hundred kilos. And if you want to be 3%, that means you're going to have to pull off like 12 of those, leave you with three kilos at like 85 kilos. It'd be like 4% body fat. So now we know we've got about 12 kilos of fat loss to lose, to fat to lose. So then you can kind of like go, all right, I've at least objectively got a rough idea of how much fat there is to come off. But as you become more and more and more and more advanced, it becomes more of a, an eye thing, you know, yep. which is very, this is the part you can't teach. I can look at someone and go, eh, 15 kilos, you know, and, and it's ballpark within a few. Yeah. What I will say is that there's always more than what everyone thinks. Yeah. Always more. Even on myself in this current prep, I'm like, God damn it, I'm lighter than I thought I'd be. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's always the case. 
Yeah. yeah. I'd say on average, most men that are bodybuilding are going to lose anywhere between 10 and 20 kilos. Yep. You know, that's probably a fair one for the, for female bikini competitors. It could be as low as three to four, but it could be as high as 10 to 12 as well. Um, and then everybody else is going to be somewhere in the middle of that. So, you know, you're at least talking for most people like an eight to 12 kilo loss. And that's probably being very, very, very like conservative. Yep. If you um, are working with someone like you're trying to, to um, allow this person to put on like as much weight as they need to in order to grow tissue and doesn't matter kind of how much body fat they put on to be a certain size or is it like are you trying to keep this person kind of as lean as possible to, just so that you only have to diet off what's necessary? Yeah, in a perfect world, you only gain muscle, right? Um, but I think people should be in a body fat that is comfortable to them that doesn't provide negative feedback yes. to the point where it starts to then either inhibit their ability to continue to grow or even diminishes it. So like we could talk about this concept of P ratios whereby, you know, the protein accrual is greater than that of fat mass. And then there may be a point in time for each individual as they go up the weight gain phase, whereby that starts to shift, you know, as a percentage, it might be like 60, 40 muscle to fat. Then it might be 50, 50, then it might be 60, 40 fat to muscle. And it's like, once you're starting to recruit more fat than you are tissue, this is now a negative outcome. And typically that's going to, you know, have some issues with potential like increased risk for like metabolic disease and decreased hunger and blood pressure and lipid metabolism and all this kind of stuff. So like now we're actually saying, Hey, we're just getting fatter for the sake of getting fatter. But I think you should go up until the point whereby you are comfortable both psychologically and physiologically. So like, are you okay with how you even look? Mm -hmm. Because that's important too. And I don't think you should probably ever really push fat mass beyond a previous set point. Uh, wherever it was prior because the more you start to push it the greater the opportunity is then for you to continue to do that later on yeah uh and also the further you get away from your stage weight or expected stage weight the greater amount you need to lose as a percentage typically what that ends up is the greater the, the the negative adaptations occur on your way down to the next stage weight so like someone who only has to lose five kilos versus someone who has to lose 15 the difference between the start point and the end point also is going to be larger so then those adaptations potentially are larger. So this person's going to deal with more hunger issues, more satiety issues, you know, energy deficit issues, sleep issues, all of that sort of negative shit starts to go haywire the further you have to go beyond it. Um, so up until the point, uh, I would just say that probably the rule of thumb is push it to a level that is tolerable, whereby you're not accruing fat mass greater than muscle mass mm. and performance is continuing to improve over time. Yep. yep. And they're kind of my metrics for, you know, and then you can look at some biofeedback markers too. you. Like what's the blood pressure like on the individual? If that's starting to get skewed, that's bad. You know, yeah, we definitely don't want that to happen. If blood sugar levels are starting to become skewed consistently, both in the morning and also like postprandial after they eat, maybe we're now looking at some potential risk factors for insulin resistance. Do we want to do that? No, there's no advantage to doing that. Um, but I don't think that there's this arbitrary body fat percentage number that, people should stick to or even a percentage above stage weight whereby we can, you know, undeniably say, Hey, if you go beyond this, you're increasing your risk for insulin resistance and insulin resistance is going to decrease your ability to grow muscle because there's arguments both for and against this P ratio concept with yeah. whether or not you can grow muscle with high fat mass or not. Yeah. Um, my experience has been that I don't think it's actually that significant. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So we're in this, I guess, pre prep phase like prep for prep, if you want to call it that. Mm. We've, I guess, looked at, you mentioned like a lot of, I guess, psychological characteristics and behaviors and stuff. We've looked at 
to put it bluntly, not being too fat. Is there anything else that we need to cover in that kind of pre-prep phase? Yeah, a sufficient training stimulus whereby you can retain that muscle mass now because it's mature enough that a, a large deficit for an extended period of time, because we're doing an extreme diet for an extreme length, isn't just going to put you at a greater detriment for extreme muscle loss. So I, I personally wouldn't recommend anyone even considers a contest prep unless they've been training effectively. And that's probably a whole topic of discussion in itself for like four to five years. For the people that are only listening, there was a great big smirk when Dean said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> effective. Because a lot of people train, you know, or a lot of people, what's it, they're saying, like a lot of people exercise, not a lot of people train. Yeah. You know, um, so like I think your training should have been at least like focused heavily on some form of progressive manner, whatever model you choose. Mm. Uh, and you had to have gotten stronger and or, you know, able to tolerate more volume and gotten larger and been able to maintain that muscle mass in a diet phase for at least three to five years. Yeah. If you haven't done that, don't bother because it's just going to be nasty. Mm, yeah. Um, I also personally don't, I'm not, I'm not actually a massive fan of uh, team bodybuilding either. I oh. just, I just think you're not in a, a mature enough state in its entirety mm. to be yeah. putting your body through that yeah, it's and, and the risk profile for how that may impact, impact you later on when you've, you've not got a fully matured system is yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. If you potentially take, yeah. scary. Yeah. Especially if you don't get the right guidance as well. Like, I mean, yeah, well, if yeah. you get some cowboys, um, you can fuck yourself up. Like, and I can see yeah. the appeal because like a lot of the top guys did. Yeah. And it's like, mm. they, yeah. You know what I mean? Like they could get away with that. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. You know, if you've got these top tier pros, uh, drug using pros, obviously in this instance, that are 25 that are looking like they've got the physiques of 40 year olds, you know. Mm. But yeah, is this a chicken or the egg scenario? Like, do they just hyper responders and they got lucky? Mm. Um, or do you need to start that young? The chances are you probably don't need to start that young. Like, if you're a hyper responder, you'll know very quickly. Yeah. You know, uh, and then the same, and then the natural game is like, you're going to be the greatest natural competitor in your mid to late 30s. Mm. Yeah. So starting when you're 20 is pointless. <laughs> yeah. It's a fucking long time to be competing too, man. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. You know? Yeah, because like we've been mm. young and wanted to do it and stuff. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think you're going to get massive overnight. Yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. It's, but it, the same rule applies for the for the gear guys, man. Like the best in the world are still in their mid-30s. Mm. So like sure, if you want to be this like, you know, freakish young pro and you're you're 100% sold on. Maybe you can start, you know, but you still don't need to be competing at 16 through to 20. Yeah. Mm. I just I just don't see that. That's because every time that you diet, you're not growing. Yeah. You know, and your greatest opportunity to grow is in that phase. Mm. You know, so you're just inhibiting your capacity that you then maybe have to later on pharmacologically enhance. Yeah. To get what you probably could have got just naturally really because gas. you fucked that system up. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That makes sense. Growth potential is huge. Mm. Yeah. Take advantage of it. Yep. Yeah. Tap that shit out. Mm. So anything mm. else? So we got it upstairs. We're in okay enough shape. Training hard enough, consistently enough. Training effectively. Yeah. We're yeah. Good to go. And then Are I think ready? probably just sitting down and uh, having a legitimate conversation with yourself on a, like a needs analysis of what a, a week may look like at some point. Yeah. at the worst of it and just making sure that even professionally your job will allow that to happen you know like yeah how much time you're going to have to dedicate per day to some form of output and if yeah. you can't do that level of output are you willing to eat less food you know mm, and yeah. do you have a job that's highly like demanding from a cognitive perspective or like a you know uh 
refined skills that are going to require you to be on all the time. And like, do you then even need to be able to considering like how many stimulants can you get away with before that's too far to, to do that? And just really sitting down and saying like, how much time do I have to dedicate to this? And is this the right time to do that? Um, because there is a point, unlike, unlike a weight loss journey, which is essentially, you know, indefinite until a goal is achieved, you can stop and start. There's no time sensitivity to that, right? Yeah. You can stop and start. It's fine. There's time sensitivity to a pro, yeah. which means if you're behind two or three kilos of fat mass, then you need to be. The only way to, to get in front again is to up the ante. Yeah. And upping the ante is going to come from less food or more output or both. And sometimes you just have to find time in the day to get it done. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is a non-negotiable requirement for a contest prep that I think a lot of people don't realize. You know, yeah. it's, it's crazy to hear of people saying like, I do two hours of cardio per day and I train five days per week. And I also cook my five meals fresh. And like, do you have the money to do all this too? You know? Um, and then it's like, you sometimes you just have to find time of the day. It may mean that something as important as sleep ends up getting one or two hours less. Yeah. 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 That's, um, there's something important about like, there's something to being willing and able, but then having a deadline as well. And it's like, like you said, it's like, you know, if, if you're not like if you could be willing and not able you start you start getting behind and it's like it starts getting stressful the person's behind they know they are you're like trying to catch them up and they physically just can't do it mm. it's like it doesn't matter how mm. much you pull back if they can't do it it's like that's that should have been flagged at the start and being like this is what the worst of it could be like are you able to do that and i think that's a really yeah. important conversation that everyone needs to have with people and then like even just mentioning like the financial commitment the time commitment and the financial commitment it's like cooking your food or your food is like not cheap and especially when it's like high protein and you've got to like tick all the boxes nourishment wise it's like yeah there's other things for, for prep as well that you need to consider you got your memberships you got your suit you got your this if you're a chick it's even more and it's like all of those things need to be thrown on the table before we even go mm. you know this is this is the thing we're doing it even little like travel accommodation. Yeah. And then if, if you are limited in time, now you have to buy prep food potentially. Not only is prep food potentially going to be inaccurate. So now you're running that risk profile. You're also spending more money. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, like even if I just threw a glance at it, like my food per week is probably like in the two to $300 vicinity, you know, depending on what I'm purchasing, there's gym memberships, like you said, yeah. uh, to, to compete at the shows over here are somewhere between 200 and $400. Yeah. You know, tanning is going to be somewhere around about 200, $100 per show. Yeah. Um, obviously like the night before I want to be closer to the, to the hotel. So like that's another here, that's another $250. Like everything starts out before, you know, you're like, Oh, hang on a minute. I'm probably dedicating at least $500 a week to, mm. you know, yeah. expenses. Yeah. Mm. And I'm doing that for 20 to 24 weeks. Like, do you have $500 to give away every week? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a consideration, the financial aspect of it. Yeah. Because it is a hobby. That's all it is, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're not getting it. Most, what, 99% of people aren't getting a check at the end of the road. Yeah, definitely not for the actual competing itself. Like, obviously, you can get other income. Like, that's where some of my coaching is uh, could come from. But, but um, yeah, it's it's a hobby. Yeah, because I mean, what, like you you play soccer. What's the difference? You might a couple hundred dollars a year registration and your boots. Yeah, yeah, and you get to shift the blame to everybody else when you lose. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think the other important thing that you touched on there, because Jace and I speak about this regularly, is like that cognitive 
function concept. Yeah. Like it, we're to, uh, like, there's gonna be personal trainers that are listening to this that want to compete to improve their business and all that kind of stuff as well. And being able to mm. communicate with the clients that want to compete, understanding what fatigue, hunger, low body fat, etc., does to your ability to perform as a human, like mm. it can't be underplayed. Mm. Yeah, no, no one's on social media like going, "Hey guys." Prep's really hard. Like, yeah. they're always like, hey, man, got to go out and get it. You yeah, know? yeah. What's your morning routine look like? Everyone's giving you, the, you know, like we know, you know, that highlight reel. Um, but the reality is, is you are going to change as an individual. It is up to you and the people around you to try and mitigate that as much as possible. But we are literally talking about an elongated phase of starvation mm. while simultaneously requiring the individual to perform at their greatest capacity to an extent which is backwards in periodization, yeah. you know, absolutely backwards. As we generate more performance, we generally give more food <laughs> and we also get more recovery. But in here, it's the, the opposite. The recovery starts to just become diminished over time. The food starts to come out over time, which decreases the recovery even further. You also then feel like shit. So the perception of all of these things gets worse. Um, it's, um, it's a mental slog, you know. Yeah. It's really like a game of attrition, bodybuilding. So who can withstand the, the pressures the most? Yeah, yeah. Repeatedly, yeah, 100%. over time, and still make it to the end with somewhat of a smile on their face. Yeah, yeah. So you know, little off tangent, then we'll come back to like the actual prep phase because I'm really curious about this because we just touched on a lot of trainers think that if they compete, that's their ticket. It's like if I compete mm. once, then everyone will line up and want to coach with me and want to prep with me. So from what I understand, you competed once and then took a really long break, competed again, and I will say it because you probably won't. During that time, you became one of Australia's best prep coaches and most renowned mm-hmm. prep coaches. So what is the message to everyone who thinks like, yep, yeah, if I just put my trunks on and get on stage, I'll be all good? Yeah, like... Competing and doing well can certainly provide some validity to your opinions, but you still need to have the requisite knowledge to formulate the opinions and the strategies to then become successful thereafter. Because mm-hmm. there's a bunch of top tier bodybuilders out there that are horrendous coaches and have no clients. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like for me, yeah, like I, I finished my university degree. I'd helped out a couple of people just to general weight loss advice. Um, I then took on one or two clients just to sort of test the waters. Um, I'd competed. Some of my opinions then became a little bit more valid or had a little bit more value, I suppose, behind them, a bit more substance. Uh, but then it was really my clients that then created the demand for me. It wasn't me, you know, at all. Like I already had them. So like it will help you get your foot in the door, but it won't keep your foot planted on the, on the throat of being a good coach. Yep. Uh, that comes from experience, repetition, and, and seeking to be better from a knowledge perspective over and over and over again. And yeah, I did uh, 2015, 2018, 2022. They're the, they're the comp seasons that I've done. So it's always been three-ish years. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, this is the other thing that people don't realize too, is like, you know, this prep for me has gonna, is going to end up being like, oh, 30-something weeks because of the fact that this, the, the comp got cancelled. But yeah. let's just say normal prep, six months. You then, depending on how serious you take the gain phase, like that's potentially six months. Yeah. And then there's maybe like a two to three month period in the middle where you can kind of like just take the foot off the pedal, you know? So like out of 15 months, you get three months to kind of have some more freedom. Yeah. Mm. 
if you're going to compete once a year, you're, you're up shit creek. Yeah. What's your opinion? Like, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who have either not competed before, or they, like they, have, they haven't competed before and they want to, um, or they might have clients who want to, but they maybe don't want to compete themselves. Like, how beneficial is it to have competed yourself to coach other people um, to the stage? Because you hear a lot of um, coaches on social media who uh, like rag on people who coach other people to stage who haven't competed themselves and irrespective of whether they've been successful or not, they think that that's not right. Um, I know personally, I didn't compete before I coached clients to the stage, but I had a good circle of friends and um, obviously understood the laws of thermodynamics and training and periodization and stuff like that. So I was doing my best at the time. Just really curious to know where you sit with that. I think initially in your first season as a coach, it would be advantageous to at least have experienced what it feels like. But I think over time, I don't think it matters once you hone your craft, yeah. you know, because the, the craft is being honed by being a coach, not by being a competitor. Like being a competitor has certainly not made me a better coach. Uh, yep. If anything, it could cloud your judgment and your decision-making process initially because what a lot of people end up doing is just repeating what they did for themselves, yep. which yep. is really not an ideal situation to be in. Yep. Um, whereas the more people you coach, the more you're exposed to different individuals, different psychological mindsets, different physiological capacities, like different resilience, all this sort of stuff, you start to learn different strategies. Yep. Um, and those come from both you know, head in the book to reading about all of these different individuals and then also maybe potentially doing some consultations, like you said, having a really good circle around you, Jay, so that you can, yeah. you can lean on people that have experienced different people. Yeah. And then also obviously just over time, just being exposed to them yourself. I don't think being a competitor helps that part at all. Yeah. I think it would help initially though, at least with understanding what it feels like yeah. so that you can at least, especially if they're a new competitor, set their expectations appropriately. Yeah, I think you know. once, I'd, once I competed and I got like down to a sufficient level of body fat to acceptably say I did, um, it was that living with it that made me better at coaching. It's like understanding how they felt, understanding going into the yeah. gym, understanding the time component, you know, the the challenges that they're facing outside of the gym as, as well with commitments, you know, with work and et cetera. It's like that's the thing that you don't get to feel. Um, and <laughs> that that is a good thing to kind of be able to communicate to your clients and to help them co coach them along the way. Um, but I guess like just for someone at home who like, you know, they, they might like the sport of bodybuilding, but just not be in a position to do it themselves. It's like you can get someone to a point and then consult with people yeah. to get you to that next level. Like I've done that before. It's just like, I've got this person, we're in this situation, here's all the information and stuff. Like, you know, I'm, what would you do next? Mm. You know, and then yeah. have that person help you you know, with this person. And there's nothing wrong with that. If, if anything, like, um, that's a highly respected thing for anyone at home who's, who's like, got reservations about doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm not an empathetic person, but it has for sure allowed me to empathize with people that are, that are competing under my wing. Um, but it could also backfire, right? Like, let's just say I find, just to pick an arbitrary number, I find contest break 50% easier than most people. Mm. I could also then be the competitor that's like, what's your problem, man? Just get it done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, this isn't that hard. Yeah. You know, like, and here I am sitting in my ivory tower, let's say, because I have the capacity to choose my hours in the day. I choose when I want to train. I choose when I want to eat. I don't have a boss telling me to do particular tasks. Even then, I can partition certain tasks of importance away when I'm in a certain part of my contest prep. Like, 
I have a I have a partner who understands what a prep feels like. She's done it before uh, and will never do it again because she realizes it's just ridiculous. <laughs> you know, like so for me to even use my experience is potentially a really asshole way to go about it. But you know, but it does definitely give you the opportunity to proactively warn people. Yeah, yeah. Like, these are what you may experience, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um definitely initially yeah. too. Like I, I've experienced the same thing coaching powerlifting. I've learned way more from my lifters and I have my own preps but that ability to be like yeah I know yeah I understand yeah that's normal like your mate that your client that messaged the other client was like should I feel this shit like when my clients ask that I'm like yeah Yeah. (laughs) let me guess you woke up at 3am the day after your 1am one RM deadlifts like yep been there like you you're able to have those interactions with people I think is the is the vital part of it Um, but similar it's like got people strong before I like I've had clients that are well stronger than me. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's like it's the yeah. same kind of idea uh, in terms of like you said, learning from every individual you work with will teach you more about patterns than your own stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, like because you don't you don't hear from the client necessarily. They got up every two hours to piss for the last eight weeks of prep. Yeah. But when you do the prep, you're like, oh, this happens. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that poor person was dealing with that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think this comes down to like, again, as the coach now, like being really good at communicating and also being really good at listening because like the more you can listen to different individuals throughout each process, the more you can then preemptively say to the next client, Hey, these are some of the things you may experience. Now you've never experienced them personally, but you know that they exist because you're a good coach. Um, And and this is, this is just, again, like more, to suggest that you don't have to be a, a competitor to be a coach. And to be honest, most people shouldn't be bodybuilding competitors or figure competitors or any of them. Mm-hmm. Most girls could probably do bikini and it not be that detrimental, you know? Yeah. Um, but the ones that are requiring you to get to like excessive levels of body fat or not excessive, it's the opposite, very low levels of body fat. Um, not everyone should do that. Yeah. Like we're talking about a genetic game here. It's not, it's not necessarily a game of if you dot all your I's and cross all your T's, you'll do very well. Mm. Um, so yeah yeah so moving out of that pre-prep into actual prep how does that look how do we start to even conceptualize what that looks like and what's going to happen yeah so I mean you're going back to that initial sort of uh, needs analysis approach and determining what do I need to lose what time do I have and then from there, determining how do I want to go about trying to minimize all of the potential negatives of this. Like contest prep, honestly, in a nutshell, is about how can we best mitigate fatigue yeah. for as long as possible to maximize a healthiest, the healthiest physique we can get to stage. Yeah. Certainly not a healthy physique, but the healthiest, you know. Yeah. Um, and there's going to be various strategies that we discuss throughout the one percenter that give people the opportunity to manage this. So we're going to have dietary strategies on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, potentially even, you know, uh, the entire prep concept, like whether or not you're in a, a linear deficit reduction phase, like constantly pulling calories, whether or not we should consider like decreasing training volume or decreasing training intensity. Like how do we manage output markers? Should we be putting in cardio? Like all of these things are worth you then considering like how do we mitigate fatigue? Yeah. Because fatigue is going to, is what's going to drive up all of the negatives more like the hunger, yeah. the sleep, the, the assholeness that you may experience from a personality <laughs> perspective. Um, and then once you've done that, then you just want to, you, then you just essentially just need to set your, your intended rate of loss. Yeah, yeah. And then it's about just constantly checking in, you know, like 
Is my rate of loss currently at the state it needs to be? Yes, continue. Yeah, Can yeah. we push it up a little bit faster and then maybe slow it up a little at the end? Um, one thing that I um, I think I pioneered quite well in this industry and now just seems to be sort of common thought um, is that you should always consider the opportunity to push the limits the hardest when you have the most availability in regards to your recovery pool, which is at the beginning of a prep. Mm. Uh, whereas most people in the past have always said we should do as little as possible at the beginning so that we've got more to pull at the end. Mm. But when you look at a, a prep on a, you know, on a scale, the least stressful time is the beginning physically, psychologically, all of those things we mentioned before, the most stressful is at the end. So our goal should always be to be pulling back the stress the most at the end, not adding more stress by taking more food and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, um, awesome. So, but this is an experiencing and a difficult thing too. And this is the, the cool thing about this, this program too, is that most PTs will be like, all right, let's pick some numbers. This person's eating 3,500 calories. I want them to start losing weight. A sufficient amount to pull out is 500. Let's start there. We know that we can pull out another 200, another 300, another 200, another 300, and maybe they might get down to 2,000 by the end of it. And that seems pretty logical, you know, um, whereas they won't typically have the balls to say, I'm going to pull out 1,500 tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like, why would you do that? Because then they're thinking, but then I'm going to end up at 1,500, not at 2,000. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. You're just going to get to the midpoint faster yeah. so that you can then slow up Put the end point. And, and that just comes again, this whole concept, this sort of, uh, I suppose you could say like a uh, scheme of a prep is maximize result by minimize fatigue. Yeah. Yep. And that's really my thought process the entire time I'm prepping someone. Like mm -hmm. how much can I get out of them now? What's it going to cost me? And then how do I fix the, the cost that I've, of that decision that I've made? The cost maybe in this instance might be pulling more calories or pushing up output for a period of time. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, it's just there's kind of an art to it, I guess, like there's a skill to it that can't necessarily be taught, but you can at least have frameworks set up and as to how you have these ebbs and flows throughout an entire prep. Mm. But the general concept is exactly that determined rate of loss required, set an initial deficit, constantly check on checking on the rate of loss and whether it's on target, allow for error margin, repeat, repeat, repeat. Yeah. I really like the, with any coaching and, and even tying in directly to like programming, be it training or nutrition or whatever is like that what balance of proactive versus reactive you have in the whole setup. So it's like the proactive part is like, this is the rate of loss. And then you have, obviously we're going to track this data to allow us to be reactive with, and you probably even identify like if this, then that a lot of the time, sort of like this could happen around here and I'm prepared for it. And this is what I'm going to do when it happens. Like, is that the sort of approach that you take? You've got that, that framework kind of set out. And then, like you said, data-based decisions. hundred percent. And like, luckily for me, I've got like, most people come to me. I would say like my, my, um, my common client right now is like a 12 to 18 month client mm -hmm. in regards to a prep client. It's no longer a 16 week client. It's a person who comes and says, Hey, I want to compete at the end of next year. Yeah. And I want to maximize my result now so that I can maximize the result later. And they, everyone gets this sheet and it's just a periodized plan of 12 months, you know? And for me, I'm mapping out here's when we're going to grow. Here's when we're going to push. Here's when we're going to break. Here's when we're going to get maintenance. Here's where we're going to recover. And then here's prep. And then the ideal situation might be like from this week, we start fat loss. My rate of loss that I want to achieve is this. Mm -hmm. And there's a range. And it, like, if we tick those boxes off, then here's when we're going to take our first break, you know, and then there's going to be another bit and it will all pretty much be like somewhat planned out yeah. probably up until about 12 weeks out. And then it's kind of like 
TBA, 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 yeah. you know, to the <laughs> advice. You know, this is this is where we're going to have to like just navigate based on what's been achieved. Um, and the cool thing about this is that um, I mentioned goal and process focus before in a slightly different uh, way in which you would typically refer to it, but goal being, you know, like I want to look a particular way, process being what do I need to do each day to achieve that. Uh, I'm very, very, very big on process-focused uh, outcomes and process-focused mindsets with my, my clients. And that is is that I've set the rate of loss required. All you need to do is how many steps do you need to do per day? What food do you need to eat per day? Yeah. How do you need to train? Tick those boxes and just focus on the process because if you're focusing on the goal of looking a particular way, you can then have this scenario, which I've had with a client just recently, not to any degree of negativity though, of, at six weeks out, now they're like, am I lean enough? Mm. And it's because now they're starting to shift towards, I'm supposed to look like that on stage, yeah. which means every day that I don't, I'm now failing my prep. Yeah. Forgetting yeah. that they've still got six weeks of process to, to nail, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and also then comparing to other competitors, mm. you know? Like maybe I get very lean from the front very quick and I show everyone just my front and they're like, wow, he's diced, but I've got a, I've got a fat bum still, you know? Yeah. Or whatever it may be. So people that start to become too focused on just the goal of how they think they should look too early, that's when shit goes haywire too. So this this periodized plan allows us to become more process focused too because each week there's a, there's a set, set of things they need to tick off. Mm. As long as you're doing that, you should be fine. Yeah, yeah. I think from a coaching standpoint, one of the hardest parts of going to a deadline-based, like using comp prep as an example, a deadline-based outcome is that decision making on a weekly basis needs to be so much more direct like you've got a rate of loss goal and you have to hit that fucking rate of loss goal like if i have a general fat loss mm-hmm. body composition client and they don't lose weight this week it's like i don't care like give it one other week let's see yeah. what happens yeah like dude maybe you weren't here maybe it's like i don't have to unpack all this shit to figure it out it's like give me one more week if we're still stagnant then we'll make a change whereas like in prep time it's like no 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 there's that i would assume and how we've yeah. done it is we need to make a change because this didn't hit the target. Yeah, there's, there's certainly points where most of the time I'm, you know, proactively setting this rate of loss. I'm expecting that it'll occur. Sometimes it goes too fast mm-hmm. and you're like, uh, I'll leave it for now, you know, yeah. and then it gives me some buffer time or it doesn't go fast enough. And then, yeah, I'm having to say, hey, we're going to have to pull some cows every week for the next couple of weeks just to make sure we stay in front, you know. And then that's now it's when we're now saying we're going against the strategy of mitigating fatigue as much as possible. Instead, we're pretty much pushing it up. Yeah. Um, but there should still always be a, in the back of the mindset, okay, if I can push it here, here, and here, does that mean that I can potentially break there? Yeah. yeah. And one thing that people definitely need to realize, though, is that never breaking in fear of not maintaining progression will almost always result in no progression. Yeah, yes. So, so what I mean by that is, is that you will have periods of time whereby maybe the rate of loss isn't as great as what you wanted it to be proactively you take out some more calories next week proactively add some more calorie output and then you're like fuck they're still not losing the amount that i want like i can't break them yet you know mm-hmm. well if you don't break them from a caloric perspective you'll break them from a uh, the other way and that shit will start getting worse and worse and worse yep. like there has to be a period of time unless the person is just an absolute robot to say hey take a break mm-hmm. pull back the stress let's actually see what's underneath you know what's mm-hmm. going on so I think as a coach too, you need to have some clear defined rules of like, how much am I willing to push? What's my like overshoot? Mm. But if I make it to the overshoot, I still need to take the break. Yeah. Because yeah. if you don't take the break, 
it'll break. <laughs> yeah, and, you need, uh, and I've done yeah. that. I've done that before, you know. You need to have breaks. You need to consider them. I think that, you know, no one considers those. It's just like, oh, I've got to do 16 weeks. Like, let's just use the arbitrary 16 weeks. And it's just 16 weeks. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's no breaks. Even from a... Till you can't push no more. Uh, like an adherence standpoint. Just to be able to say like, four weeks to go. Three weeks to go. Like yeah. from a client standpoint, yeah, they're really the just be like, yeah. "Yeah, all right, fuck it, I got two yeah. more weeks." Whereas you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's like I'm just pretty gloomy die here. Yeah, that's when you get all the. Um, <laughs> I think I need a refeed. Yeah, kind of stuff. It's yeah. like I think I need this. Like you'll get that feedback from your clients, and it's like if you have phases to them, like you probably still get those every now and then, <laughs> but it just gives them that light at the end of the tunnel where it's like this time is to go. Mm. And then we're going to have a period where we start to bring things back. Yeah. It also allows you to go a little harder potentially too, you know. Like yeah, agreed. If, if you just looked at somebody's macros today, you might go, whoa, that's some really harsh dieting. But if you look at it over the elongated period of 16, 20 weeks, like maybe they only dieted hard four days a week, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and we know that you can do that. And the, the thing that you, that all of this sort of discussion centers then around is like, what is the individual variability of each client? Because we have... We have like common responses to calorie restriction mm-hmm. where most people sit under this, you know, fairly average bell curve of if you take out this amount of calories, they'll lose about this amount. This is about the expected amount of adaptation that we can account for metabolically that isn't associated with uh, neat and output. So neat being non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, or like uh, subconscious movement that people don't realize they stop doing, fidgeting and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then there's some individuals that just, outside that bell curve mm. on both ends of the spectrum. You know, I've got one client that can diet and get peeled on what would cl- be typically classified as calories per kilogram as, of weight gain. Yeah. And then I've got other guys that are like way down the other end, yeah. you know, and like, and I'm they're, they're eating like rabbit food. And I'm saying like, I don't want to do this. I know you don't want to do it, but like you mentioned before, two it's like we have a time sensitive goal. And we have a very specific amount of body fat that you need to get to. Sorry. Yeah, it's necessary. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Um, and this is the other thing that people do need to realize. There is a necessary level of restriction for some individuals. Yeah. You know? And, and you will see people, if your coach says that you're eating less than this, fire them. Yeah. You know? It's like, yeah, for every one of them, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. You know? But there's going to be a couple within each of your little groups of clients that just struggle more for whatever reason. There's actually a, um, I've never had experience with him other than uh, talking on the podcast, but there's a a fellow in America. His name's Austin Stout. Super smart guy. Really cool guy. He does a podcast with Joe Jeffrey called uh, Optimal Physique Girl. And he's the kind of guy that seems to adapt at both ends of the spectrum, which you would not not typically see. So like at 115 kilograms, he's eating seven, seven and a half thousand calories. And then he, I think he diets down to like low 90s and he has to eat like 1,700 calories to get there. Wow. So like he adapts both negatively and positively in a massive amount. And this, this guy's not, not accounting for output shifts. He's not, not accounting for metabolic adaptation. There's PEDs involved, so he's even controlling metabolism a little bit in regards to like thyroid meds and all that sort of stuff. But he's doing a shit ton of cardio, shit ton of output, and he gets a 90, he's at like 1,700 calories. That's rough. Yeah, like, that doesn't doesn't happen for most people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for him, it does. I, I'm even thinking about the way back up. 
Like yeah. seventeen hundred would suck, but the way back from seventeen hundred back to seven, yeah, it's like shoot me in the face. <laughs> so much food. Yeah, man, he he does some horrendous foods to get it in sometimes too, like yeah, just like oils and shakes and stuff. Yeah, of course, and, yeah. You know, like two hundred fifty grams of carb glug intra workout. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So, so like this, this, this is where experience just quickly is the only way forward to know what's possible. You know, yeah. you just you have to have skin in the game to know that. Uh, but again, part of this program is going to be like, we're going to give people these ranges of expectations. And then there's like, this is where most people should sort of fall within the average. This is roughly how many calories they may have to go to or can get up to. This is the kind of output that we see where you start to tip over by pushing too much. But then there'll be a big asterisk. It'll be like, however, sometimes some shit happens. Might, yeah, yeah, that's it. Some people, some people are different. So mm. looking at like, the course itself and, and what we do with most PTs is like come in, learn how to program effectively, learn fat loss strategies, learn how to create a physique, learn training, et cetera, et cetera. I think most decent personal trainers that are around can take someone to whether it's eight, 10 ish, maybe 12 weeks out from a prep. Like they look mm-hmm. decent for a photo shoot walking down the beach. They look good. Where they tend to shit themselves the most is like the last six weeks and in particular, the peak. It's like, I know like I've had people that have moved from one to the other and they're like, I'm like, Jason, you're writing what happens for the last four weeks because that scares the shit out of me. I don't want to fuck that up because <laughs> this person's put in so much work and time. It's like, that's not necessarily my specific wheelhouse. So his photos help mm-hmm. <laughs> so what is what's like where do we start with a peak when does it start where does the thought process start how do we go about that yeah so like in an ideal scenario we're like going to try and decrease the importance of the peak yeah yeah so let's just a peak week or as it sounds is, is a strategy of anywhere from say three to ten days where we're trying to optimize the look by refueling the system with more than likely carbohydrates potentially manipulating water and sodium and electrolytes, although arguably most people don't have the skill set to do that. Um, and getting that extra 1% to 2% of the look. Yeah. So we're trying to take a depleted, worn-out, fatigued physique and making it look like a full and healthy physique with no body fat. Um, the, the three primary factors that will manipulate that will be hydration status, carbohydrate status, and stress status and fatigue status, like stress and fatigue being put together. So if we know that it's primarily fluid balance, carbohydrates, and stress fatigue management, the best way to manipulate those is to elongate the phase in which you expose the person to that stimulus. So ideally, we want to be bringing carbohydrates back in, and we want to be decreasing fatigue by bringing carbohydrates and calories back in, in the sort of one to three weeks prior to getting on stage phase, not the three days beforehand. And then the hydration status is just about maintaining homeostasis. So like get a set point, don't touch that shit. Yeah. You know, um, nobody here is smarter than the body in regards to manipulating intra and extracellular fluid balance. We can't do that shit that well, <laughs> you know? So let's just say like, Hey, just set water, set sodium, set food. Don't do anything to it. And then it's about decreasing fatigue by escalating calories to a certain point for a period of time. What period of time depending on the individual, uh, and refueling the, the tissue that is now depleted with carbohydrates. So it's just a steady phase. Um, I think most people try and do too much, but I think that's probably because of they're too too far behind. They're not ready. 
one, they're, they're too far behind, so they're trying to do something magical. Or two, they think something magical exists. Yeah. Yeah. I get a you lot know? of people ask, like, or like even 16 weeks before that week, and they're like, what's it going to look like? I'm like, yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, probably we got so, probably so some food. <laughs> many processes to go through, and you might not have to do anything. Yeah. It's like, it's not a, like, I'll just get out of my book and, like, give it to you, kind of. This is what everybody <laughs> does, kind of thing. But obviously, there's people out Ooh. there that, yeah. That have that because people want to know because they think it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like the peaking strategy is a hundred percent dependent on the prep strategy mm. too. Mm. Cause if, if we've taken, you know, someone like that Austin guy and he's had to do 1700 calories at four at 94 kilos, he is significantly more depleted than me. Who's eating 3000 calories at the same weight, yeah. you know? So like my peaking strategy might be that I just need to slightly escalate calories, slightly escalate carbohydrates, try not to worry about it. Yeah. Whereas he might be like, he may need to drastically increase calories and carbohydrates in order to get his physique back to, to normal. Now, because of that, I can kind of just roll on in, spend one or two days eating more food, continue on through the comp, happy days. He may need to actually start his peaking strategy well earlier because there may be some negative associate, negative shifts in how he looks by refueling that person too. Yeah. And the other thing is we really don't have, we actually do now, but we don't have a hell of a lot of um, data on bodybuilders in regards to the peaking strategy. Yeah. There's a really good recent one done with a bunch of uh, guys together. Um, I can never, I can never um, pronounce his name, but he's like uh, Guillermo is his first name, and then um, Dr. Scott Stevenson and a whole bunch of other guys came together and came up with this peaking ideal peaking strategy, and it sort of follows this concept of you know seven to eight days out you want to escalate calories back to maintenance. That's stress mitigation 101. There's a period whereby you want to maximize the depletion of carbohydrates by bringing yeah. carbohydrates down, putting fats up, protein neutral so that you can then get this super compensatory effect mm -hmm. on carbohydrate replenishment. And that's kind of based on cycling and, and endurance sports. Then there'll be a period of carbohydrate overfeeding. And then there'll be a period of like what they would classify as like a washout phase or, yeah. you know, something to try and reduce any fluid retention that may have been achieved via the, the overeating phase. Yeah. So this is, you know, this kind of depletion, repletion, tidy up phase. Yeah, that's like peaking that. 101, yeah. you know, um, but that's under the assumption that the person is ready to go seven to 10 days out. Yeah. Whereas somebody else who's not ready to go, maybe we're actually just going to diet them all the way into like three days out, give them a little bit of a repletion of glycogen. Don't touch it. Yeah, you know, yeah. or maybe someone who's ready early, maybe they've actually started eating more food three weeks out mm -hmm. and then you don't do anything, you know, cause they just keep getting better and better and better. Um, is that, M it's, oh, sorry. it's yeah, I was going to say it's both the most, um, anticlimactic period potentially. <laughs> But also the most exciting part, um, and it really just depends. Yeah, so, yeah. I was going to ask: Is like, does that endpoint at the start factor in that week? So, like, do you base it off yes. the? Yeah. So that's still part of the the endpoint. So yeah, yeah, the yeah, rate of loss and all that stuff yeah. is within that within that week. You've calculated all of that. Yeah, because we're going to start with the end date being the competition, then we're going to work back. You know, it's like. Uh, let's just say 16 weeks to the end date. And then we're like, okay, we want to lose X amount of fat. And I want to do that over 16 weeks. Mm -hmm. Now it's 17 weeks. We start because the peak week is no longer a fat loss week. Yeah. You know, um, it definitely should never be a fat loss week. That is one thing we should probably say is that yeah, that's peak week should else. never be a week of achieving more fat loss. Mm -hmm. It yeah. should be a week of stress mitigation. Stress. 101. Yep. Yep. And how you do that is up to you. Um, now, then, then it's like, yeah, okay, do we want to take diet breaks or periods of refeeding whereby they're no longer dieting and losing fat potentially? Maybe that adds two to four weeks. You know, is there error margin involved? Maybe that adds two to four weeks. Yeah. And yeah, it's all backed off that peak week. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Just so I clear that up for 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's makes it sound the best thing about that is it makes it sound and you said the same thing after Will's episode. It's achievable. Yeah. It's like it's actually yeah. the oh, steps yeah, are you can actually do this and this, it's not yeah. some voodoo magic that you need to find the biggest bro in the biggest gym in the corner yeah. some dark corner somewhere and be like so that um beetroot extract and like rock salt like what tell me about that like, yeah. you don't have to find this secret code that everyone doesn't like how do doesn't cook, share with other how people you cook your chicken yeah yeah fish and rice cakes yeah <laughs> yeah well it's like the, the red red wine and the red wine and chocolate peak yeah 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 uh, let, let me say this okay so there's a couple of uh caveats and in peak week definitely do not eat food you haven't eaten for months mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> uh definitely not definitely do not train as hard as you've ever trained and you definitely want to you want to decrease the energy deficit one way or another, whether it's through a reduction in training volume or an increase in food or both. But those three things are probably super important. Yep. And then I'd say the the fourth thing would be just stabilize hydration. Yeah. If you do those four things, you're gonna be pretty fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you follow a periodized model to prep whereby you're having periods of under-eating, periods of overeating, and all the rest of it, you also now have the opportunity to pull data week on week on week on week as to how this person responds yeah. to the times when you don't diet them anymore. Yeah. Like, does this individual look exceptionally good the day after you give them high carbs? Or maybe do they look better two days after, three days after, four days after? What happens if you give them two high days, three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days? You know, And like these, these are all opportunities for you to accumulate data to minimize the risk profile of the peak week. Ideally, you go into a peak not know, knowing exactly what you're going to do, as opposed to like coming up with this yeah, magic strategy where everyone gets this carbon copied version of, even though that one uh, from the guys in that paper is fantastic, the deplete, replete, clean up phase, it will work for most people because it's pretty well balanced in science. Um, it's potentially not necessary. Yeah. You know, because, and but then I'll say there's two more caveats to that. One being, Sometimes as a coach, you may need to do something in order to get buy-in from the client to make that week more yeah, successful of course. as opposed to nothing. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking more about playing to the psychology of the client. Um, that's, that's caveat number one. And then you know, number two is that like, it's actually not going to make that much of a difference no. subjectively how they look. So don't, don't overstate it. Yeah. I think that's a great message. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. So in saying that I do want something special for mine because why not, you know? Yeah, <laughs> no, really. I, yeah, that's a lot. I definitely do. Like, I want to. What are we gonna do? You know? Yeah, yeah. Probably waiting for that. I kind of know what we're gonna email. do. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um. So something I think that isn't spoken enough about, and I think it's great that we are talking about it, is like what happens after the show. Mm. Do you put that into your like what turned into twenty twenty six week plan? Do you then already have a plan set for? the next 12 yeah at flex we have like a minimum commitment time from our client of four weeks post comp yeah good at least to try and get them out of the danger zone yeah um but i pretty much start talking to my clients about post comp and what they may experience at like four to six weeks out yeah um i think you need to be prepared um if you're not prepared and you get to comp and you haven't had discussions around what that post comp will look like there is every chance you'll probably just shit the bed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, yeah. What are they? Because there's, there's a couple of, yeah. I've never been yeah, lean okay. enough for it to matter. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's two major concerns in a, in a post-comp phase. 
uh, I'll just talk physiologically. The first one is, is that you should be trying to reestablish uh, normative function as quick as possible, but in a controlled manner. So what that's going to look like is eating to a calorie maintenance slash surplus, bare minimum, of a desired weight after comp. Um, not not maintenance of current body weight, but of a desired body, body weight post comp. So this is a controlled overfeeding phase to recover metabolic function as quick as possible. But the second concern for that, though, is you're also in a uh, heightened state for potential lipogenesis yep. uh, and then the opportunity to accumulate and create new fat cells, which you then have the opportunity to fill up later on. So yep. we don't want to go through this, you know, um, like it's like hyperplasia of fat cells is what I should also say. Like the repletion of fat cells mm. and the creation of new ones will happen with an uncontrolled overfeeding phase. Mm. Yeah. So there's this interesting period of like, we want to control the overfeeding so that we replete fat stores, but we don't want to overfeed so excessively that we actually replete and then potentially generate new, you know? So the strategy you take then is going to be dependent on the individual too. Like if you've got someone who's exceptionally good at just following the rules, you can probably just go straight to a really good quality surplus and they'll just continue on. But if you've got someone who's like, yeah, I want to eat my food, but also have some extras on the side, then maybe the diet looks like it's a little bit underfed knowing full well that they're probably going to overfeed. Um, but what we definitely don't want to do, um, but I will asterisk this and say if there's uh, some psychological fear around fat reaccumulation, that person really needs to be talking to somebody who's honed in on that sort of side of things, um, is if you try and slow down the rate of the reaccumulation phase too much, you're just elongating the negatives of a contest yeah. prep. Mm. So this is this is the the two terminologies we hear is this is like a recovery diet versus uh, a, a reverse diet. A reverse diet is traditionally sold on the concept of we want to re-escalate calories in the absence of weight gain, which also means the absence of fat reaccumulation. That's bad. We don't want to do that. That's just elongating the deficit. And then a recovery phase is saying we want to get back to a certain body weight as quick as possible. Mm. I, I personally like to sort of go like somewhere in the vicinity of like. 30 to 50% of weight regained in the first month and then held mm. or 10% above their stage weight, whichever one is sort of in the zone of, you know, if 10% is more than 50%, then don't do 10%. Yeah. They're kind of my numbers that I'll go for, but it's not, I don't want you to gain that weight tomorrow. I want you to gain that weight over the next four weeks at least. Yep. And then we want to see stabilization, yep. you know, and then I like the stabilization phase then to be a little bit elongated. So like that might be the next eight weeks. Because that now shows us that dietary behaviors, food, everything is aligned with that yeah. person being at maintenance. And it's also then setting them up to be in a really good state to then reaccumulate muscle tissue to have the yeah. energy to train to do all the rest of it. So the recovery phase for me post-comp is going to be eat more food in a controlled manner that's more than what you need, but not so much that you start to accumulate fat at a rapid rate. Um, dial back training, you're not going to grow any muscle tissue then. It's not a time to grow muscle tissue. It's a time to, to regain fat mass, really reduce the stress, pull down the output, and then prepare again for the growth phase. Yeah, yeah, that's such a yeah. great way of explaining it. And I don't know if you ever heard it like many moons ago, but like, you know, there's this thought that post-comp like you're, you know, hyper-anabolic yeah. or something like that. And you need to take, you know, advantage of this rebound and, and all this stuff. And um, when you explain it the way you've explained it, it's like you, you're probably not in a great position to maximize growth potential, thinking about all of this fatigue that's surmounted over the prep. And then 
physiologically all your body's really going to want to do is you know put on body fat and get back to some form of normal state so having that as the the main focus just shifts that idea that we should get jacked and just ram calories up and that's highly likely going to lead to complications in in the future and probably you know affect your growth potential uh down the line yeah it also will happen like it'll go south real quick if you don't keep an eye on it yeah mm. so you replete or regain glycogen at a much faster rate than what you do fat mass in regards to the visual effect that it has on you. So the problem you can have is you can have somebody who's overfeeding on carbohydrates, fats, all of it. They've gained five kilos. They look exceptional, yeah. you know, but the fat accumulation is so small and it's in areas that you don't necessarily look like. Maybe it's under a butt cheek. Maybe it's under your armpit, armpit. Fuck, maybe it's your tongue or your ears. You don't know, right? Like, yeah. And then you're like, oh, I can keep eating. So they eat more food. Yeah. And then they, they have more meals that are off plan because they don't see the, the detriment because it's so acute. So but the chronic overfeeding part is that then what you'll see what happens is you'll actually watch people to, to pick some numbers. They'll go from like, say, 90 kilos competitive. They get to 95. They look amazing. They get to 96, 97. That amazing starts to blur a little bit as the fat starts to come on. Yeah. And then they'll just stay at 97 and they just get fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter because all yeah. the glycogen's repleted now. So all you're doing is accumulating fat mass, but it doesn't happen like – it doesn't always continue to go up. You sometimes just get this shift. Um, yeah, well. and like there, there's some cool research in things like um, uh, like anorexia nervosa and, and bulimia and that that will show that you can actually get a preferential regain of lean body mass in the post-starvation um, period. But we're talking about bones and, and yeah. vital yeah. organs yeah. and all that kind of stuff too. We're not talking about necessarily muscle tissue. And it also is typically just the repletion of previously lost tissue, mm. not the gain of new. new. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, that's the important thing for people to realize is you're not actually accumulating new tissue, you're just re accumulating previously lost tissue. Yeah, um, yeah, and then the other cool thing too is like if you if you can have the patience, and this period is super fucking hard, mind you, because the goal's now gone mm, and yeah. you still have to restrain yourself, and your hunger and everything is through the roof because there's a bunch of systems trying to make you get back to your previous weight. Um, but if you can sustain it, um, then any novel stimulus becomes a sufficient stimulus to drive a growth adaptation. Yeah. And you've got three of those available to you, depending on who you are. Like one of them is going to be training. One of them is going to be food. And then if individuals use steroids, that's number three. Mm. And if we're thinking phase one post-comp is recovery, i.e. get back to baseline as quick as possible, you're doing that with food. That's yeah. already novel. And you can pull back on training and keep that as a novel stimulus later. You certainly don't need fucking drugs after comp, yeah. you know? So like really it's just the food that's doing it all. And then you're preparing for the growth phase by doing the least amount of training possible so that then when you engage the growth phase, you've got that as a novel stimulus opportunity to drive growth. So this, it's a really difficult phase because you're kind of saying to people, like, hey, don't do that much. Like yeah. just <laughs> pump the brakes and just wait, you know? Yeah. But if you wait now, every client that I've ever had been able to maintain that sort of 10-ish percent above stage weight or 50% of what they lost, when they get back to their original weight after an elongated growth phase, it's always in better body composition. Yeah. yeah. Always. Because, yeah. and, and if you don't do it, let's, let's think about this. Like, what's the consequences of not doing it this way? Consequence number one, if you do it too slow, is that you just constantly stay in a state of deficit and, and negative outcomes for an elongated period of time. You then need to do the recovery phase later on anyway, so you've just wasted time. And consequence number two of overfeeding too much too fast is you then need to diet some of that fat back off before you can go again. Yeah. Yeah. Which is even worse. Now we're talking about, again, more dieting. So, yeah. Yeah. Patience. 
Yeah, I think uh, is it like John Dewitt? Like he talks about like runway, um, and mm. like you know in a growth period. Like I know we're not talking about contest prep now, but it's like if you're working with your clients for a long period of time, and it's like just that accumulation of body fat from this post dieting post like. Um, from the approach you take post dieting, it's like if you're putting on extreme amounts of body fat, it's like that runway starts to get shorter and it's like you're affecting your growth potential long-term. And it's like, if you're looking at even someone like yourself or that 15 months that you've got from show to show or um, to, to improve and stuff, it's like, that's going to affect that improvement phase, you know, which is typically when we're trying to, 100%. you know, improve the physique with whatever um, the feedback was. Yeah, 100%. And like that growth... This sort of comes back to the uh, the full circle of the beginning. You said, like, how fat can you get or how far can you push it? And that is true. Like, if we're saying, hey, we don't want to escalate body fat beyond a previous uh, homeostasis, then if you reaccumulate that back to that straight away, mm. like mm. right back great. to the number one in the first eight weeks, yeah. and then you start a growth phase, like, you're almost certainly going to go beyond it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you start you started in a negative position. So yeah, the, the runway concept is great. Um, I know that's something that Joe's used way back years ago, and it's kind of been you know, manipulated and used for PEDs and a few other things. It's a great terminology. So yeah, how much runway can you buy? And like a growth phase is slow, Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it can only happen at a certain rate. So you really want to be like setting yourself up always to maximize the length of that phase as possible. Yeah. I think there's two valuable lessons from, to take away from that. It's like the, the, call it responsibility that flex teaches to be like, no, 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 you're definitely here minimum of four weeks after. Like, and we, one mm-hmm. of the quotes we have in our like sales um, copy pages is like, you were told you had to choose between integrity and income. We're here to say that you can have both. And that's the goal of mm-hmm. who we work with. It's like, yes, you can make a good income and a solid business out of being a coach and you can still have some integrity with it as well. And I think that's part of Fuck the integrity out, yeah. because that person wants yeah. to whether they stay with you or they don't, they say better shit about you and they look better. And mm. you know, like we were talking about it with Liz actually about like before and after photos and how our clients mm. come to us because they see our clients look great all the time and they get stronger yeah. all the time. So it's like seeing those clients come in and get thrown out the back and rebound and not cared for afterwards. Those stories get out and they get spread. Yeah. And from a business standpoint, it's not a, not a good way to run a business and from an integrity standpoint it's like you're fucking people up <laughs> yeah 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 so I think it's super valuable yeah. to to introduce that as a concept I've uh, received it quite a lot actually in the last 12 to 24 months of people being like man all your guys regardless of the size or where they're at all just seem to look so much healthier than everyone else's mm-hmm. it's like yeah because it's at the top of my fucking priority list yeah, yeah. because a healthy individual is a happy individual and a successful one in their endeavours mm-hmm. and then on top of that, yeah, bravo for that, for a saying you can have both integrity because people, you know, people come to me like, oh man, how did you get into coaching? And like, how do you get clients? And I'm like, I just tried to do a good fucking job. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Like if I do my job to the utmost of my ability and I, I can, I can walk away each day and say I didn't screw someone over and my, my intentions were always good. My integrity is extremely high. If you don't get good clients, it's, it's, you're probably just not that good at the coaching, you know, Yeah. <laughs> which is unfortunate. Yeah. But man, like, yeah, the, the the money first PT mindset shits me to tears. Mm. So bravo to you guys for having that as part of yours too. Yeah, I think personally we experienced it the opposite end. It's like guys mm. are uh, settling for less income than they probably deserve because they're just focused on only one thing, like just being prof- like technically skilled 
It's like, no, no, you can actually mm-hmm. be really good at all the other stuff and make a lot of money as a good coach as well, not just you You don't have to sell your soul and print out $20 PDFs. You can still be a fucking good coach and charge accordingly and yeah. run a business and like do Instagram stories and mm. sales and whatever else and mm. live have sustain a really good career because I think the biggest issue we see and I, I don't know what it's like in, in bodybuilding if it's the same but like the turnover rate is so high because they miss that other part and we see really good coaches that are passionate and even highly skilled that fall out of the industry and get a real job because they didn't make it mm. as a coach because they were shit at the other stuff mm. yeah yeah, I mean, like I, I look at people in my industry who are at the top of the game uh, for arguable reasons, the gurus. And like most of the coaches that are doing that are like 40 and 50. Mm-hmm. And that there's no reason why I can't still be doing this at 40 and 50 and absolutely loving it. I mean, I should be really fucking good at it by then. <laughs> you know? True. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, you can you can have both, like you said. So I, I just think, like, people get caught up in that that oh, I need to chase these sales techniques. And mm. they forget that once you get all the clients, you still need to get good results. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you need to be, just be able to take care of them and deliver yeah. mm. all of those things that you said. Yeah, and that's that's the difference, yeah. isn't it? It's like this course is called 1% because yeah. it's, they're, they're, it's 1% of people at the moment are doing that. Mm. So being able to bring both together. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so scary, man. My, my final question to you would be thinking of a, younger PT maybe they're in could even be in a big box gym or, or whatever looking currently training people that want to get into coaching bodybuilders what are the three biggest pieces of advice you'd give them uh, I would say if you want to do it for your first time try and do it under the guidance of somebody who's done it before try and be almost like a mentee yeah. I think that would be an exceptional way to do it the first time mm-hmm. so reach out you might reach out to someone like me or someone like Joe or someone like whoever you choose as a coach and say hey I have a person, I want to prep them, but can I be a mentee of yours where I share their information, their data, and each week I check in with you and you help me get through this process? Yeah. That would be my first piece of advice. Uh, two would be you'll always need longer than you think you do. Yeah. Um, and then three would be be honest with your client about both your fears and expectations as to what you can achieve with them so that you both can make some informed, have informed consent. Because that's the biggest thing with contest prep is that a lot of people get into it with their shades on, not knowing about like all of these potential things they're going to experience. Um, and, and maybe that's because the coach doesn't have the experience in it at this stage, so they can't really inform them. But if the, you go about step number one, yep. uh, informed consent to the point where the, the client understands what the potential ramifications of a contest prep is going to achieve, is going to do them. So they can at least say, Hey, I understand, excuse me. I understand, but I'm, I mean, you know, I'm giving my consent to this. I think that's really important. And then you can also hold your head up knowing full well that this person's done it under the proviso of knowing what to expect at least. So. Yeah, I think I'd, the conversation kept going earlier, but that idea of being willing to ask for help in that environment, it's fucking huge. Hmm. Like not put your hmm. ego aside. It's like if you haven't done it before, there's other people out there that have and they're probably pretty fucking good at it. Yeah. And most of them want to help because they give a shit about the industry. Yeah, exactly. Man, I, I've been looking for a contest prep coach, honestly, for like, I can't tell you. Yeah. Like, and you want to talk about trying to make money? Like, I've been le- le- leeching cash for 12 to 18 months that I could have made a shit ton on by having another coach. Yeah. But the reality is, is that there was just no one that I felt comfortable yeah. to say, 
if they come to, to, to flex and I can't take them on, I can just confidently be like, that person's awesome. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely a few, but they're also already established. So then they're not going to be a part of flex, you know? So like yeah. finding someone who's at least fresh enough that knows enough that has the right integrity, the right values, gets good education. It's really fucking difficult in the contest prep world. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Which makes me so think this it, is, there's like, people just don't know how. Mm. Yeah. Which is exactly right. So like, man, like if someone came to me and said, Hey, can I do that one thing? Like I don't have a hell of a lot of time to do a hell of a lot of stuff outside of my clients. But if someone said to me, Hey, can I, can I just run it by you once a week? Fuck. I'd be like, you're a legend. Yes, yeah. you can. And maybe I'll take you on. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go, you know? guys. Potential. Yeah. You know, career opportunity. <laughs> Put that there. at the end of the course notes as well, mate. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Dean's just yeah, said well, he'll do internships with all these clients. Yeah. Uh, everyone in the course. <laughs> well, no, I, I won't do the internship. One percenter will do the internship and <laughs> that's then it. we'll do the next part. We'll, yeah, yeah. Hey, we'll vet them. Good way of grooming. I like it. I like it. <laughs> awesome. Um send me send me a bank details later. We'll sort it out. Yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Uh, so I think Dean's unit is almost complete. So uh, exciting times ahead, I think, mm. it'll be the next couple of weeks or so. Um, so yeah. if you do want to check out the 1% PT program, uh, we announced tonight that we've actually released a seven-day free trial. So if you go to stcfitlearning.com forward slash collective, uh, you'll find the Coaches Collective, which you can get a seven-day free trial from. Uh, and you can explore the entire courses. I put a post up tonight. I was like, what's the main thing that holds people back from like mentorships, courses, all that kind of stuff? It's like trust. It's yeah. like, what if I get in here and it's shit? Yeah. Like Dean so, said all this smart stuff, but I don't want to get in there and it just be crap. So we're just like, well, we'll fucking have a look at it. And you can just decide for yourself because mm -hmm. we think it's pretty fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, if you want to check that out, Dean, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you and Flex and all the details? As is always super easy, best just to go to flex underscore success on Instagram. Uh, all of our uh, coaches are on there and our links, we've got a quick link there, which gives you all of the opportunities to check out your yeah, coursework that we offer, um, eBooks, one-on-one -on -one coaching consultations, all that stuff. So any services available will be via the quick links on Instagram. It's the easiest. Perfect. Beautiful. How many weeks out? How long have we got to go? Uh, we four at the, this weekend. Awesome. Four and six. So, and I, I assume people um, will find your handle through Flex if they want to watch that journey as well. Yeah, um, unfortunately, the the shows over here aren't doing live stream. Uh, I just found out, but that's fine. But yeah, I mean, I'll probably start to post a little bit more on IG just for the last bit. Um, although it's kind of nice being this like unknown underdog, no one really knows uh, who I am, yeah, where true. I'm coming from, competitor. Yeah, he's um, this Aussie guy. Yeah, I'm real buzzed this year, man, because it's like it's been so long trying to get my clients to stage. And I've got a massive chunk of like really awesome dudes um, in Australia. So I'll be like doing my show and then the next weekend I'll have a bunch to peak for and then the next weekend a bunch to peak for, then my show and then another one's to peak for. So it's going to be a crazy four or five weeks. Yeah. Um, especially with time zones. I won't be sleeping much over those weeks, I think. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right. Okay, well, thank you very much, Thanks man. for your time. Very Appreciate valuable it. conversation. Always a pleasure, fellas. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome. All the best for the rest of your prep, man. Thanks, dude. Thanks, guys. Bye.